，你真系开枪打我，我唔会放过任何机会。你不嬲都咁认真嘅咩？系，简单嘅嘢我唔做，我都系。所以我觉得我哋有啲嘢好似，你系话大家都咁好波？相信我，好人多到俾人误解。Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast, Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is、uh, my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, John. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, more or less same as last week. Um, not much has changed. Still,、uh, still working from home. Still living in quarantine. Well, not not quarantine really, but you know, in relative isolation. Yeah, that's、uh, the same situation for me. I'm still in lockdown. Well, and、um, yeah, just spending time watching films and writing about them. All right. So before we begin our discussion, we'll start as always、uh, with giving a you know a short summary of what we've been doing in the past. Couple of weeks. So, is there anything interesting that you've been reading or watching or playing or whatever you want to share with us?、Uh, so, I'm still、um, reading Bonfire of the Vanities, and I had the chance to watch a number of films this week.、Um, some heroic bloodshed movies,、uh, just to get reacquainted with John Woo's filmography. Let's see, uh, uh, A Better Tomorrow,、um, Hard Boiled, and City on Fire. And I also watched、uh, some Japanese films, Kokutai, which is a ten-minute experimental documentary、uh, about baseball, which looks at the or uncovers the fascist imagery involved in the ceremonies of baseball games. And another film I watched was Atsushi Funahashi's international co-production, Lovers on Borders, which was a work he filmed in both Japan and Portugal. And、I think you wrote a review about this, didn't you? I did. The review was published on Thursday on V Cinema. So、uh, if、uh, if anybody's interested,、uh, go ahead, please、uh, read it and、uh, let me know what you think. Yeah, and I'll be sure to post a link. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, I suppose、uh, not really.、Uh, might try playing Resident Evil Two tomorrow. <laughs> oh, cool.、Uh, I was never into those games. I guess I don't know why. Yeah, I, I played them when they first came out on the PlayStation, and、uh, I recent I bought the remake. Well, actually, it was bought for me for Christmas, and、um, the remake has just stellar graphics, brilliant gameplay, and、um, the horror imagery is so atmospheric. It's genuinely scary, even though I I can suss out a lot of the、um, game mechanics involved. What system is this?、Um, PlayStation Four.、Oh, okay. Are you gonna get? Are you gonna get the PlayStation Five? Um, it's a little bit out of my price range, <laughs> and、okay. the games, the games are looking expensive as well for the next generation of consoles. Yeah, 
I think it's always better. I mean, I'm, I'm ne- I've never been one to get new consoles. In fact, the last console I had was five years ago. It was a PlayStation 3, uh, which was weirdly stolen out of my apartment. Uh, there was a break-in, and that's that's one of the things they stole. Uh, okay, was it like a special edition? No, no. It was just a, a crappy old second-hand PlayStation 3. Uh, but as a, as a rule of thumb, I would say it's probably better to wait a little bit uh, because the prices drop and you also get a better selection of games, I think. Yeah, uh, game games are released and then a year later you get the Game of the Year edition with extra content and a, a cheaper price. That's true. So yeah, day one purchases aren't really advised when it comes to uh, video games. Unless you've yeah. got the money to afford it. <laughs> uh, to be fair to video games, there's a lot of content. So you get your money's worth eventually. That's true. And speaking of video games, uh, last time I talked about starting playing Mass Effect, I finished that. Oh, well uh, and, done. And uh, I, I have, I, I had my my issues with it, but I, I enjoyed it enough that I think I'm going to play the second game. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to start soon, or maybe I'll, I'll give it some time. But uh, I, I've heard the second game is better, so I'm looking forward to that. And I, I mean, I still enjoy. I, I would like to know to follow the story a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, the story was fine. It was the gameplay that had problems. There were like a lot of tiny, tedious things that I just, uh, it wasn't, I, I didn't think it was necessary. Like it, ma- it just made the gameplay more of a chore than it had to be. But otherwise I, I was, I enjoyed it a lot and I'm hoping the second title, I, I might, I might just play the whole trilogy since I started, you know, why not? Yeah. You mentioned it was inventory management. Yeah, that that was one item that that I didn't enjoy. It was just tedious. You had to clean your inventory every time because it would get full, and uh, like the actual process of cleaning it was just a, a like very slow and annoying. Another another problem with the maps. There was a lot of repetition. Like like you go to a bunch of planets, and all of them just kind of look the same, and and like the rooms, a lot of them just look the same. So there was a, a lot of that. There was there wasn't a lot of variety in 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 the exploration. Okay, that's a shame. So that, yeah, but but the, the the main if you if you focus on the main story, I thought it was pretty good, and I'm I'm hoping the second game uh, kind of maybe is a little bit better, but um, it uh, we'll see. Yeah, I made it halfway through the second game and I stopped playing. Okay, what did you think of it? Uh, I was enjoying it, but this was a time when I sort of transitioned into watching more movies than playing video games. I see. So after that, as promised, I did watch one Anne Hui movie, uh, Simple Life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I strongly recommend it. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it a lot. It's, it's a, about, um, I mean, the story is quite simple. There's, there's some ties to cinema, which I enjoyed that. The, uh, essentially the, the, the caretaker of a family that's worked, uh, that's worked for a healthy family for 60 years, uh, suffers oh. from, a, fr- suffers from a stroke and has to, has to be sent to an institution and the younger son of that family kind of takes care of her. Yeah, it, it's the Andy Lau movie, right? Yes, yes. It won something. Uh, it won, a, I think, something at the Venice Film Festival, I think. I don't I don't remember if it was the Golden Lion, but it, was, it made it big that year. Hmm. I, I watched uh, La Dolce Vita uh, because we mentioned it last time and I just <laughs> I just wanted to you know I wanted to see if it was uh, we, we we talked about this and I wanted to see if there was a connection with between yeah. that and, and the movie we talked about it yeah was there um not directly it was I mean they're very different movies I think the connection is that maybe in both cases the titles are used ironically mm. uh, La Dolce Vita is also about 
people seeking happiness and being dissatisfied with their lives. Mm. Uh, and I think there's a connection there. Um, but La Dolce Vita is a very much more abstract and surrealist than than uh, The Bittersweet Life. Uh, okay. Also an enjoyable movie. I, I had a good time watching it. Good, good. And I also watched uh, the Amazon Prime original series, The Boys. Okay, season one or two? Both. Both, okay. I haven't um, finished season two yet. Yeah, season two. Well, season two is not over. I think there's one episode left. Mm. I, I've been adamantly against superhero stuff for a while, and I think this might be the first superhero anything that I'm, I'm truly that I've truly enjoyed. Uh, well, that's not true. I mean, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed some of the other some of the Netflix ones like Daredevil and Jessica Jones. I think the boys maybe tops all of them, at least in my book. I just I, I really liked the realistic take that they had on the superhero genre. Yeah, very cynical, very anti superhero. I I think it's an an improvement on a comic book as well, or the graphic novel, I should say. Have you read the graphic novel? Yeah, it's a sprawling, sprawling series. Uh, the the series maybe want to check out the comic book because it's I'm, I'm this is the, the first time in a while that I'm really excited about a, a series be it be it a book or a uh, or a film or whatever and I'm kind of I kind of want to know uh, what happens but I'm I'm getting the impression that maybe the series doesn't follow the comic book uh, faithfully no no it seems to come in at an earlier period of time and it doesn't give the at least from what I've seen so far it doesn't give the um, main characters compound V from the outset like the comic book does. Generally, it follows the plot. But okay. there, are some, there are some elements that uh, haven't happened yet that are near the start in the comic book. I see. Oh, I see, I see. So, so the timeline is a bit different, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 and I'm, I'm kind of I'm uh, saddened that the, there's only one episode left in the second season. Hasn't it been announced that there'll be a third season? Oh, there will be, but it's gonna. It's just gonna. Like I'm just saying, I'm gonna have to wait for it, and I'm. Uh, I'm not <laughs> a patient yeah. person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the only the one criticism that I would have is I don't know if you've gotten to that part yet. How much of season two have you have you watched? Uh, I watched the first two episodes, and then I had this really busy period of time where I was writing every day. Uh, I got to the part where Kimiko has met her brother and um, the boys have effectively kidnapped him. Okay, but you you have gotten to the part where they introduce Stormfront. Yeah. And because you've read the comics, you know the twist about Stormfront, right? Hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to... Spoiler, if anybody's listening and doesn't want to find out, it it, it, it turns out it, it's revealed that Stormfront is a Nazi and she's a, like 100 years old or something. To be fair, she's uh, like... The clue is in the name... And um, she's from Portland, Oregon. But yeah, and 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 I think the one change that they did from a comic is that they reversed the gender, right? Mm. And that's my criticism is that the actress who plays Stormfront just doesn't sell it as a Nazi for me. Like she okay. just doesn't doesn't have that meanness. Like she essentially she essentially is she's an ex Nazi that essentially plays a white supremacist. Hmm. Like an extreme right wing white supremacist in the show. I mean, like that's essentially how you would interpret it in modern times. And I, I, she just doesn't sell it for me. I, I'm sorry. I just don't like. I, I wish they they choose chosen an actress who can do mean a little more uh, believably. But, but it's not. I mean, it's it's such a such a nitpick. It's just it just sticks out to me every time I see her saying something racist. It just it, it feels so forced. Uh, 
Okay. Like there's there's like a, a hesitation whenever she's trying to be racist. There's like a hesitation in the actors that just like doesn't doesn't quite like it it's close i mean she's a good actress but there's just a, a like one final step that she does just doesn't quite get to to, mm. to make the, the character believable and that's that's my only criticism otherwise I've, I've loved the show okay okay and that i think i think we've spent enough time on on uh irrelevant stuff uh <laughs> you've written i i didn't uh I, I i i did follow the news this week but i forgot to write anything down and you've written a couple of stuff down so why don't you uh, give us uh, a summary of the news this week, or at least what you've what you've written down. Yeah, these were sort of like late editions, a couple hours before um, the recording of the podcast. Not to uh, you know, spoil anybody's uh, suspension of disbelief or pull back the curtain, but um, essentially what I wrote was uh, about the release of the Taste of Tea by Third Windows Films on October fifth. And uh, Arrow Video announced that they are going to release Versus, uh, the zombie movie, in December. And this is going to be a, a, alongside, um, on the same day, I believe, as a Shohei Imamura collection, three films uh, late in his career. And the other news item that I wrote down was the uh, tragic suicide of Yuko Takeuchi. Uh, I heard about that, yeah. Yeah, she died uh, maybe around this time last week. So it's like um, she was discovered early in the morning in Japan by her husband. Uh, no suicide note, but it's presumed to be a suicide. Uh, her funeral was held earlier this week, and she's the latest star from um, Japan, uh, indeed Asia as well, because um, a Korean and a Taiwanese uh, star have uh, taken her life. But in Japan, we've had three from the world of show business, uh, all from the acting world. Seiyashina. Uh, was I think earlier in September. Haruma Miura was uh, June or July. Uh, all of these suicides just um, really shocking for people. Totally unexpected, especially Yuko Takeuchi, who seemed to be doing really well in her career. Um, she just uh, she had a child in January of this year, so uh, she leaves behind a, a young family. And uh, yeah, I guess all that can be said is. Uh, if you have the chance, um, try and check out some of her performances to remember her by. Um, the one that's most easily available if you have an internet connection is Creepy, which is on Amazon Prime, and uh, it's free at the time of uh, the recording of this podcast. Uh, it's free in Japan and in the UK. I'm not sure about America. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can I can look into it and post post a link uh, of the Prime showing if it's if it's available. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know anything about her condition, whether she was suffering from depression, but you know, the I think the the lockdown can definitely affect people in a negative way. Yeah, that's uh, there was speculation it could be COVID nineteen related. Nobody knows, and um, I, I respect for the family. Uh, yes, yeah, best not to speculate. That's true. Uh, just to get back to your previous, so you mentioned the taste of tea. I don't think I've seen it, but is that uh, is that a a really strange surrealist film? Yeah, it's a series of uh, vignettes. Uh, oh, it's by Katsuhito Ishii, and uh, he directed. Um, oh, I always get the name wrong. Um, Shark Skin Guy, Peach Hip Girl, and um, Funky Forests. Uh, and he also. Uh, works in animation and he worked on the animation for Kill Bill 1 and The Taste of Tea is like uh, it stars Tadanobu Asano as a guy who 
visits his family in a rural part of Japan. And um, there are four members of the, or five members of this family. And um, the film follows each member as they um, embark on like their everyday life. But there are some surreal moments to it. Yeah, I have. A, I haven't seen it, but I have a. I have an interesting anecdote that is tangentially related to our podcast. Where I was uh, a while, ago, a few years ago, I was trying to to get a friend of mine to. I was trying to introduce him to Japanese cinema. And I was recommending to him some 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 of the films that I like, and he was adamant or he was very against it because he just he had never seen I don't think he had seen any foreign film whatsoever. He was just a a very casual moviegoer, but he, he had somehow stumbled into the taste of tea, uh, mm. and he 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 had such a bad time watching it because he he just called it so strange. I had no idea what I was, what was going on, and I think <laughs> it was the taste of tea. I'm not a hundred percent positive, but the. That name sounds. I think that's the film that he was talking about, and that is just had just dribbled off Japanese film. It was it was just too much for him. Okay. So, so I thought. I mean, I'm. I don't think that says anything about the quality of the film. I think it was just such a such a such a strange departure from what he was used to that it kind of that it was it was too much for him to handle right away. Blew his mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sort of that way. So maybe a great film, but maybe not. Uh, not fitting our current theme of of gateways. I I don't know because I've met people who have watched it. Like I, I like it could be brought up randomly in a conversation, and I'm surprised because yeah, it it seems like a, a difficult film to get into, but they really enjoy it. They enjoyed it. Perhaps it's a it's it's a it depends on the personality of the person. Yeah, definitely. But it's getting its first Blu-ray release, like in the world, on October fifth. So. Yeah, if you want to freak somebody out, then that, that's a from that's a that's from two thousand six. The movie, right? Uh, two thousand four, I believe. Okay, yeah. So I, I remember it was it was not recent. So that's yeah. That it took a while for it to to make Blu Ray, but that might be a that might be a chance. I might I might have to check it out. Mm, yeah, um, the Third Window Films Blu Rays, I think, are region free, so viewers in America and around the world should be able to enjoy them. I'm not entirely sure, so please do your research before purchasing anything. Yeah, of course. Um, all right, so I think that's my, that might be a good time to jump into the film that we're talking today. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, or I don't know if I mentioned it, but uh, either way, you'll see it in the title of the episode. Uh, we're talking about The Killer, written and directed by John Woo, and by the Hong Kong filmmaker John Woo, and then produced by Tsui Hark, a long-time collaborator of Woo. As usual, Jason, would you like to give us a plot summary of the film? Okay, so the story follows an honourable hitman named Ah Jong, who takes on a job for the Hong Kong triad. During the hit, he accidentally blinds a nightclub singer named Jenny with the muzzle flash of his gun, and so he feels responsible for her predicament. He becomes her guardian angel. Determined to help her get her sight back, he takes on one last hit to pay for surgery. This hit puts him in the path of Li Ying, a loose cannon detective with a burning sense of justice, who becomes obsessed with Ah Jong and tries to arrest him at every turn. During Lee's pursuit, he comes to admire Ah Jong and sees the hitman as a similar soul to himself. And so when Ah Jong is betrayed by the gang boss who hired him, Lee joins forces with the killer. All right, that was a great summary. Thank you, Jason. So before before we get into any discussion, when was when was the first time that you saw this film, and what did you think of it? I saw it when I was in high school, and um, I enjoyed it. But I think I liked Hard Boiled more because I saw that um, the next night. 
I think I took away a lot of superficial things from it that it just looked good and the the gunplay was great and Cherry on Fat was really cool. Yeah, I, I agree. I think my story is quite similar. I saw it in high school, uh, late in high school, and uh, this was the first John Woo film that I, I watched. And then I immediately watched anything of, of that time of his Hong Kong, pre-Hollywood Hong Kong era, because then he returned uh, later. Or he returned to China. I'm not. I'm not sure if his recent films can be classified as Hong Kong films. But either way, uh, I watched everything of his at the time. And I, he was a filmmaker that I, I, that that heroic bloodshed genre that he pretty much invented, or or maybe reinvented would be the 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 best way, uh, depending on on where you stand on this. But uh, but I I think like you, the killer is is a film is a great film. But I I liked some some of his others more. Uh, hard boiled or bullet in the head are are I'm I'm not sure which one I I would I would put on top but I think I think the action on those is is maybe a little bit more polished. Um, at the time I I had a problem with the killer because of its overabundance of religious imagery, which at the time I I thought he was forced. Since then I I I've, I've come around to it. I don't think it's I don't mind it as much. I still think. It's just some at some point it's out of the blue, but I kind of get where uh, where where John Woo is coming from. Yeah. But an, another thing that I would point out, and this is not a criticism, this is an observation, is that we we've done three episodes so far. In all of them, I've been I specifically emphasized minimalism and how much I appreciate it. But this film is is anything but that. Is the opposite of that. <laughs> Maximalist. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is about excesses. Everything that that this film contains is in excess, and it all comes from the director. And and I, that's a, I think that's a good thing because the director, any all the emotional resonance of the film, all the character relationship, I think come more so from the director's choices and the the ex, the excess in style that he employs rather than the story. Like I think if if you just read the script of the movie, you would not get the same impact from like let's say the friendship between uh, Ah Jong and and the the, detec- the detective. I think it, it might be there, but I think most of them comes from the way the director kind of frames the two, the the many close-ups, the the shots of smoking and looking into the distance that there are like half the movie is like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think I, I kind of I, again I'm I'm all for minimalism, but when someone knows how to how to use uh, how to use style the right way, I think it works, and I think Jenwoo is is an example of that. Yeah, uh, the style just underlines every point. So, like the f- use of uh, slow motion to accentuate or, or uh, a death, the use of a freeze frame on the on the main characters as they smile as you see they've cemented their bond their brotherhood this is one rare occasion where usually i'm used to frames frames being used at the end of something like at the end of an episode or the end of the movie but he just uses freeze frames in like in the middle of the of a scene or at the at the end of a scene but just just in the middle of the movie uh, as they like look at each other or something yeah but i was i, I was when I rewatched it, I was struck by the freeze frame, and I was um, thinking to myself, it reminded me of um, Sam Peckinpah, and I I wondered if like he used a similar technique in the Wild Bunch. You have to you have to maybe explain. I'm not, I'm personally not familiar with that much with Sam Peckinpah's filmography, uh, and some listeners might not. So, would you mind elaborating on that a little bit? So, Sam Peckinpah is an American filmmaker. He worked in Hollywood, and he made ultraviolet films, and um, probably his. Most famous ones are Cross of Iron, um, The Wild Bunch, Bring Me the Head of 
Alfredo Garcia. Oh, I think I've seen that one. Yeah, that's a good one. Horror Notes, uh, a piano player, uh, goes on a bounty mission. And um, uh, he did uh, Straw Dogs as well, which is set in the English countryside. It's like a, a siege movie with Dustin Hoffman. But um, yeah, I, um, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch is like one I think this film references, especially with the church shootout at the end, because... Um, at the end of the Wild Bunch, there's a big shootout in like a Mexican village, and the church has a similar look to it with the white walls. And um, there's slow motion used in that gun battle. And I was trying to remember if there were freeze frames used as well, as you see people get their bodies getting uh, riddled with bullets and like the heroes succumbing one by one to death. Yeah, and I think. I think Le Samurai uses freeze frames. I don't want to... Does, does Le Samurai end with a freeze frame? I know it ends with Alain Delon smiling, but then does it... Does it is there a freeze frame there? I don't well, know if you remember. So that, that's one I cannot remember. So I watched um, The Wild Bunch earlier this year, but Le Samurai was a lot longer ago. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you mentioned you mentioned the Wild Bunch as an influence, and of course, the a lot of action or or crime films of the seventies. That's why I sort of use the the phrase uh, invented slash reinvented because a lot of it is sort of recycled, but then changed enough to to be its own unique style. Because there's a lot of Scorsese of the seventies here. There's a lot of uh, you know Walter Hill, a lot of other crime films of the seventies, um, like the 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 theme of of gangster betrayal from. So it reminds me of. I forget who the director is, but the friends of Eddie Coyle. Oh, with um, Robert Mitchum. Yes, uh, that's that's nowhere near as violent, but it has sort of the same the same the same plot. The same, not the same plot. The same the same motifs circling around as a lot of John Woo films of these times. Uh, and of course, we mentioned Melville and the Samurai, uh, another another very similar film with with a killer uh, essentially. Mm circling back to our episode last week which was which i don't i don't know remember if we mentioned it last last episode not last week it's been two weeks for us uh but um but uh i'm, I'm we do, i don't remember if we mentioned it but i'm pretty sure kim ji-woon was influenced by john woo and the films that he did this around this time i don't think we mentioned kim ji-woon being influenced but this is like a, a familiar sort of tale from uh, movie making in the sense that Akira, uh, no, Akira Kurosawa, um, <laughs> John Woo was like a big fan. Like growing up, he watched a lot of American movies and he's very influenced by Hollywood movies. And I think he's mentioned that Mean Streets prompted him to do, to go into like, um, the gangster genre. And I, and I think he's said that he's been quite open about, um, the samurai being a big influence on this film as well, being a big influence on him. As a filmmaker, and then what Western filmmakers uh, like Quentin Tarantino will discover Hong Kong cinema and John Woo, and they'll recycle or or they'll be influenced by what they've seen. Yeah, and I think uh, I think what what John Woo brings brings to the table is the 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 stylization of of these motifs, which is not usually. If you look at the samurai, the the style is again more towards minimalism, more towards more more with less um yeah. with you know the character wearing a trench coat and looking cool and just being the 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 uh, cold-blooded uh, assassin who who wears sunglasses and just smiles at the camera whereas uh John Woo takes the same emotions or the same 
coolness, for lack of a better word, and 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 expresses through acrobatics, through through gunplay, you know, through showing gunplay like a like essentially a traditional traditional Chinese swordplay and and martial art. Yeah, I'm 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 sure I read somewhere that like he revolutionized Hong Kong cinema in the sense that he made martial arts films but with guns. Yeah. And and uh, going back, we're gonna. Um, I would like to to have a, a a separate section about the influences, but this reminds me a lot of uh, Cowboy Bebop. I don't know if you've seen that <laughs> anime. Yeah, um, was... some of the fights on Cowboy Bebop are kind of taken out directly of the killer, out of the killer. Yeah, probably most explicitly, um, episode five, um, Ballad of Fallen Angels, where Spike and Vicious fight in the cathedral. Angels are forced out of heaven. They become devils. You agree, don't you, Spike? I'm just watching a bad dream I never wake up from. I'll wake you up right now. What's your rush, Vicious? After all, it's been a long time. (laughs) Are you pleading for your life? Hardly. Begging doesn't work on you, remember? Even if it's coming from the man who took you in and made you what you are. Perhaps, but he was a beast who lost his fangs. That's why he had to die, Spike. And that's why you have to die. (laughs) Now, we'd like you to drop the gun slowly. What's wrong if you don't comply? Yeah, and exactly, and there's literally there's a sword versus a gun, and they're sort of equal in a sense, which kind of takes the the juxtaposition of of sword fights with guns and literally puts them against each other, like swordplay and gunplay together. Mm. I, I did mention the use of religious symbolism a, a little bit in the beginning, and I generally always, I mean, this is just my personal. It's not, it does not reflect reality at all. But I've always found it a lot of place when I I see Asian filmmakers. Like referencing uh, what 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 are traditionally Western religious, but Christianity, of course, is very widespread in Asia. So that's that's not at all that shouldn't be surprised. I don't know why I always find find it out of place. But John Woo grew up Christian, and I think there's um, there's an anecdote which I in 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 the research for this episode I, I wasn't able to find, but I think I I, sh- I should try to find. But I, I remember reading an interview of him of how he became religious, and I think he's mentioned that he grew up very poor. More often than not, the church would be the one that would give him food, or or would you know through charities organized by church by the church in his area, he would be able his family would was able to receive uh, enough food to survive. And I think that kind of made him not only become religious but wanting to be a priest for a while. Yeah, um, his family were Christian, and so they fled mainland China to Hong Kong to escape persecution. And I think he went to a Christian school. I'm not sure what denomination, but it, uh, from what I remember, it was set up by an American. Still, uh, I mean, I mean that, that that's fine. But how do what do you make of this ju- juxtaposition of extreme extreme violence with you know 
with religion or and literally the final scene taking place in a church? Well, I suppose it, like the entire film seems to be about like um well one of the themes of the film is atonement. Ah Jong is trying to atone for um blinding Jenny, the singer, and like he like he has to perform that ultimate sacrifice at the end. Uh one of the characters mentions that God accepts all good and evil. And um that's another theme in the film, as you have the two main characters who are representative of good fighting the gangsters who are blowing up the church essentially and who are the forces of evil. So I, I agree with your with your, your discussion of atonement, but one thing that I, I'm not quite able to figure out is he doesn't I mean you you'd expect sort of the his his path to atonement to give results, but in in the end it doesn't, right? He he gets his eyes are damaged, so he's not able to actually to actually get what he wants. Because there's that scene where he says, "If you if I die, save my eyes and give them to Jenny." And you would hmm. expect that that would be his sacrifice. He dies, but he's able to his final his final act of goodness that that completes his redemption is giving giving his eyes. Uh, to Jenny, uh, but that doesn't happen. His eyes, he survives. Uh, we don't know actually how the film ends. It's it's ambiguous, but presumably he survives. But his eyes, and that seems like a punishment, like a a, a very a very cynical punishment, in my um, t- for lack of a better term to to say to to categorize it uh, for the character. Uh, I don't know if you would agree with that. No, it is very. It's kind of bleak. It's it's almost it's poetic justice as well. Um, but I was like you, I was expecting him to die. He would get shot in the chest, say, and that his eyes would go to Jenny and that would like, uh, that would be a perfect moment to close the film, but his eyes are damaged. He dies and, um, spoiler alert, the cop becomes the killer as he, um, takes out the gang boss. And so it's kind of like the bleakest ending you can get. And there's a, a, a on YouTube, there's the Bay Logan commentary where he goes into um, how the film had an alternate ending where the killer, um, Ah Jong, dies, but Jenny gets um, the surgery and um, the cop uh, joins her at the airport. And that wasn't filmed because Sally Yet had uh commitments uh elsewhere so they had to just finish at the churchyard with um that bleak ending and i think that ambiguous whether whether you interpret it as bleak or not depends it depends on where you stand on on and i'll, I'll comment this in a second but but i just want to say that there's a giant plot hole in the film because they kill hundreds of gangsters can they just grab the eyes of one of them <laughs> I mean, just go to the morgue and say, "Hey, um, can can I can I can I can I get something for a second? And just take I, a spoon, scoop it out, and and there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure of the mechanics of eye surgery, but uh, like Bay Logan says, 120 people end up dead. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what he was going to do with him, right? He said, "If I die, save my eyes." Right? I mean, you know, like they're fresh, right? As they they you know just just after he kills the gangster, say. Wait a minute, boss. Give me a spoon, really quick. And back. <laughs> I mean, that's just—I don't know. That's that's that bothered me. This watch. But that aside, uh, uh, so I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think by most 
the most most likely this is a bleak end and a band ending. But I think it's maybe maybe it's it's a, it's a moral ending. Like you could interpret from, and I, I've already confessed that I'm not religious at all. But I think if you start if you start from a religious standpoint, uh, it's maybe the moral ending because you could argue that the a person like uh, Jong does not deserve redemption. He's done. He's he's past. He's he's beyond the point of no return. And you know the like the most in discussions of Christianity, there are generally God is one in two ways. He's either forgiving or he's vengeful, and he's actually both at the same time. So that is, I think, we see both examples of of you know the conception of God in this film is you know the forgiving God, where um, in one of the instances where let's say uh, Ah Jong survives uh, being shot, like at the church where he is. He's he's they're showing they're showing him taking the bullet out, and then there's the vengeful God that doesn't allow him to to finally save Jenny at the end. And you mm. know, I get in in some strange way that can I, I'm not, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it it's one way to look at the ending, I think, and maybe maybe the way that John Woon looks if 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 he if he was truly trying to be a priest at some point in his life, he's probably studied all this and he 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 knows he's there's probably biblical references that I don't recognize in the film, but but there are there possibly. Yeah, it's I suppose it could also be how could you rehabilitate uh, a killer such as Arjong? And if you look at other examples of the heroic bloodshed genre, uh, like the heroes often die or they're arrested. Yeah, but but not all of them end as bleakly as this one. Like for instance, uh, take take the movie that we discussed last week. The hero dies, but the girl is safe, makes it out okay in the end. Hmm. Right. Whereas that that doesn't happen here. The girl is, uh, who knows? I mean, who knows what happened at the end? But it's certainly she. Definitely, if we if we assume that they're not going to go after the gangster's eyes, uh, there there's really she's just going to remain blind. And and I think this is I'm I'm not a medical expert. I don't know, but it's I think the point is made in the film that there's a limited time that she can do the surgery. After after a while, there's there's no hope for her. And I think I think the deadline is soon. And since since it's assumed that his eyes are no good for the surgery, she's probably going to be blind for the rest of her life. Am I? Did you get that uh, thing from the? From the from the film, I did at the church. Um, throughout the film, it seems like her vision's gradually fading, and then in the church, which is lit by like a million candles, she's asking, you know, why is it so dark? And that's like her vision has just finally gone. Yeah, um, I, I, that still does not necessarily imply that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's irreversible. But I think we can maybe make that assumption in, in interpreting this film. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, this is this is definitely a, a. I think I think the at least the way the film ends, it's more likely that it just it doesn't work out for anybody. You know, Al Young dies, uh, Jenny remains blind, and it's safe to assume that uh, Detective Lee is that his name? Yeah, uh, goes to jail or he's he's dismissed from the police force. I don't see Lee remaining in the police after what he does at the end. You no, he's effectively ruined his career, and he, he <laughs> in front of everybody, he's killed. The gangster. It's one of those frustrating um, stories where, like, all this could have been averted if the gangster had just left the main character alone. Yeah, yeah. But of course, then the main character would have not, I guess, received the punishment that he deserved, that the divine justice or the poetic yeah. justice, if you look at it from another perspective. Yeah. Uh, so just for the sake of a thought experiment, do you, could we, could we possibly see a happy ending in this? Um, the final, the film ends with 
just like actually just like a bittersweet life the film ends with uh, Ai Jung smoking against a window or something like that right uh, so we don't know we don't know if that's in the future or if that is him remembering uh, a, a time from the past is it is it him playing a harmonica it's a harmonica sorry yeah that's right i was uh, you're right yeah it's not smoking he's playing a harmonica but we don't actually see his face right so we don't know if his eyes are injured in that in that scene right uh no i just i just assumed it was like his spirit would live on that's yeah thing. yeah so, so so that that's a possible interpretation it's it's also like like uh, just like in the uh in bittersweet life where it could be just something that is remembering before his death it could be just an artistic choice or yeah. it could just be you know an art an alternate reality here it could just be you know the future he somehow survived it and it's like that i i think that's an unlikely interpretation but i'm just i'm just saying if we really wanted to foresee a happy ending for for Ah Jong and Jenny, is it is that possible, or does the ending eliminate all that? So the way I interpreted his death, like when he's crawling around on the ground, like that was it. But he's managed to avoid getting shot by uh, like a hundred twenty gangsters, so <laughs> anything's possible. That's true. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, speaking about excesses, like there's there's you know every gangster that he kills. I don't think he there's. Oh, the only he kills only one person with one bullet, and that is the the guy that he assassinates from a distance with a sniper rifle. Mm. Uh, no, is it not? And also the he the one he assassinates with a sniper rifle is like three bullets. He shoots him in the head first. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, twice yeah. in the body, and like yeah. the first hit, the first hit, the first gang boss gets shot in the head. Boom, once, once. Okay, so yeah, only, but everybody just dies with like. Tens of bullets, just unnecessarily a waste of bullets. Uh, yeah, like Heroic Bloodshed is famous for having guns that you never have to reload. Yeah, exactly. Although he, we do see him reload a couple of times, but they, they're somehow always available. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's always a wave of bad guys to take the bullets. Yeah. So uh, do you think the Heroic Bloodshed genre is, is dead today? Do you think it's, it's run its course or are there still mo- mo- films being made? Uh, not only in Hong Kong, of course. Uh, do you, I, I, I would say, I would say no, and I can give a few examples, but I would let you answer first. I cannot think of any recent Heroic Bloodshed movies. Um, the themes are still present. And there was even a remake of um, uh, A Better Tomorrow. A Better Tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, it's constantly being remade, actually. But the most recent remake was 2018. Do you think the John Wick movies would fit that category? Yeah, I I think they'd fit into that category. Yeah, that, that's that's the only example I could come up with. Uh, they certainly don't have, and that's another thing that we can talk about. This the melodrama in this film, and it, and I actually this is kind of low. I think a better tomorrow, and especially a better tomorrow too. They have a very I don't know if melodrama is the correct word, but they have a very soap opera quality to them yeah i don't especially this a better tomorrow too where like there's like a twin brother that comes back that is i mean that is just every soap opera has that that plot element so, well at the end of better tomorrow one when uh spoiler alert mark dies i was so disappointed because he's such a cool guy yeah i mean that, that's why they brought him back because the audiences loved that character and at the time i'm pretty sure cho yun uh, cho yun fat was not a famous actor i think i think that's how he it's like burst onto the scene yeah, let me think. I think he was like um, working steadily in TV. He was kind of like a he, he maybe like a, a matinee idol, perhaps. But like he was starring in independent movies. Oh, I guess I, I yeah. 
Yeah, I think he had done a couple of he had acted in a couple of critically acclaimed dramas. Yeah, that didn't do well in the box office. Yeah, but but not action. And I think this film and maybe The God of Gamblers, I don't remember what year that was, maybe one one year after this. I think these two films kind of really rose him to prominence as a star. Before that he was a well-respected author, uh, actor. Uh, and uh, and I think a better tomorrow was the one that kind of put him in the on the map as an action star. I mean, I think he was liked so much in that film, and he was he was really the best character in that film, or at least my favorite character. Yeah, he shows such fantastic range: comedy, drama, and action. And he's like you can see that star quality that, like in the killer, he, even though it's a two man show, he he ran away with it. Everybody remembers Chow Yun Fat. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I I still think so. First of all, I still think, even though I, I, I like you, I was very disappointed that uh, that he comes, he dies at the end of the first film. And I, I when I read that he is in the second film, I, I was happy. I think it's still th- still think it's extremely cheesy how they brought him back. Uh, it feels it feels such a soap opera. And I think all of John Woo's films, maybe maybe with the exception of some of his later ones like Bullet in the Head and Hard Boiled, uh, they, they are they tone down the melodrama slightly. I think. Although I haven't seen Hard Boiled in a while, so maybe I'm I'm not remembering it quite right. No, it's quite interesting um, watching City on Fire um, for the first time in a long time uh, recently. That, is, that was, is Ringo Lam, right? Ringo Lam, yeah. And I think it was made uh, a year or a couple of years after. Um, I, I think that was '87, so it was made. It was made one be- year after a ab- Better Tomorrow. Yes. So, like that's like you can see the difference in terms of quality, in terms of direction. But that's like, uh, City on Fire is incredibly gritty. Yeah, I, and I actually, I, I think I like, uh, I've always appreciated Ringo Lam for that. Like there's, he has, he did a, uh, he has a bunch of On Fire films. Yeah, Prison um, on Fire, they, School on Fire. School on Fire, and all of them have, like, are really dark and he doesn't, he's not afraid to pull punches. And I, I really, I've always enjoyed that of him. I, I, I don't want to say more realistic, but he even like I think through his grittiness, he touches on maybe a lot of social issues. Like like in in School of Fire, he he touches on on the abuse of women and and uh, young women. There's a commentary on that a lot. But without being familiar with what's what abuse is like in Hong Kong, it it seemed to me like he was he was specifically like you know addressing that issue on the film. Mm. Uh, whereas whereas the themes that John Woo tackles are, are maybe a little bit more I don't want to say maybe as relevant but a little bit more uh universal or yeah, broader, a little yeah, bit more yeah. broader abstract yes that's right uh but uh, also didn't Ringo Lam die recently I think yes 2018 I think or oh, maybe last year no 2018 you're right yeah December 2018 I thought I thought it was a bit more recently anyway but yeah so I kind of uh, so you're right. Uh, uh, City on Fire and um, and School on Fire and all all the Ringo Lam movies are belong to the same genre, but kind of showcase a very different side, a different, a very different face, like a side, a, a different side of the same coin uh, of this genre. Yeah, it's um, like John Woo's movies are like beautiful to look at at times, whereas Ringo Lam's like close to social realism. <laughs> Yeah, are as action packed, but a completely different kind of action. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're aware of the connections between City of Fire and, and uh, Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Oh yeah, so like um, 
the the final scene or sequence in the city on fire when you've got the mexican standoff like tarantino would uh totally use that for yeah and he did not give credit uh, so there's okay. uh, so uh, Mike White uh, of the Projection Booth, uh, a, a, an incredible podcast. I recommend everyone listen to it. Did a, a short film when he was in in film school. It was, it was forever ago. Uh, actually, I don't know. It was the nine, 1990s, so not forever ago, but it was. It, it's old, and it's on YouTube. You can watch it. Where he kind of, uh, it's called "Who do you, Who do you think you're fooling?" And he points out he he compares them side to side. You know the the scenes in Reservoir Dogs and the scenes in City on Fire. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to to check out. A completely unrelated to our podcast, but I I just thought I'd give him a shout out. It's always interesting to dig through the crates and find these things. Yeah, yeah, and I I think Tarantino. Speaking of uh, Tarantino, his early influences up, I think maybe up to Kill Bill, up and including Kill Bill, are mostly John Woo, uh, especially his uh, his you know. Uh, not only violence, but st- stylization of violence is is I I can see more John Woo there than anything else, anybody else. Yeah, I did write down about melodrama and male friendship. I'm not sure what there is to say about that, uh, but it, it's it's sort of the main theme of the film, male friendship, and kind of verges on the homoerotic, in my opinion. But maybe maybe not. Male friendship seems to be like a, a familiar theme throughout the heroic bloodshed um, genre. Uh, like you see sort of similar relationship, but with roles reversed, uh, between Danny Lee and Chow Yun Fat in, um, City on Fire. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of talk about it being, um, homoerotic. Um, which do you think is kind of reductionist? Um, I think, I think it's, um, it's, it's not, not fair, but not quite reductionist. I can, I can, I can see why people think that because Danny Lee's pursuit of Ajong. Is obsessive, and some of the scenes where he's talking to the police sketch artist, for instance, and he's describing um, Ah Jong, and he's like, "Oh, he's he's got uh, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's like uh, he's a killer, but he's not ruthless. Uh, he's manly. Uh, he's different from the <laughs> average assassin." Yeah, when he describes him, no, that, that's that, that's definitely true. There's there's hints there, and like his partner's looking on, like. <laughs> With a knowing smile, I think I think the 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 music and the the long gazes into the into into the into the blank stares into the distance don't help certainly. Yeah, uh, but I think it's more admiration than homoeroticism. I think it, the reason why I call it unfair is because, like I've mentioned, I did not grow up in the West. I did not grow up in the U.S. And uh, at least Westerners, I, I, my experience with Americans, but I think this applies to all Westerners, have a certain conceptions of male friendship that does not apply. It it did not apply to where I grew up, and I, I don't think it applies to what a typical male friendship it would be in Hong Kong at this time. So I think. It's it's it. There's a part of a misunderstanding there that ha- kind of mm. has led to this interpretation. Like, uh, just just to point out something very trivial. For instance, like where I grew up, people are a lot more physical in their just day to day interactions. There's a lot more hand over the shoulder, a lot more hugging, a lot more you know like tapping and and tapping in the back and stuff like that. People people physically stand closer, and like that in the U.S. would appear. Uh, that's not how people do it. So I think, I think like that kind of closeness and admiration that the two characters feel for each other does not is not is not typical for two friends in the West. But I think it's more typical of two friends in uh, in Eastern cultures. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good point. Like, um, we don't consider like in the West, we don't necessarily consider other interpretations. So yeah, but there's definitely also hints of of uh, of homoeroticism there, or maybe or maybe admiration that goes maybe a little bit too on that side uh, from it's, from the part of John Woo. Yeah, the whole like the whole melodramatic aspect of the story just accent feels like it accentuates it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did, which, did you did you feel like there was a, a love triangle with um, Jenny? Yeah, absolutely. I, I felt that was actually more intentional. Of course, in a more charitable interpretation, you could say it's uh, both. Neither of them is uh, romantic or sexual. It's more of a brotherly love for both Ah Jung and uh, Detective Lee. Like, I don't think there's any scene where Ah Jung and and Jenny kiss. Is there? No, they have a, a tight clinch. Yeah hug each other a couple of times <laughs> mostly he's trying to save her life but like um there's no physical intimacy beyond that yeah and i think to, to maybe to go back to to the religious connotation of the films and to use a word that you used in your plot summary guardian angel i think the director maybe is taking that almost literally mm. like i think i think ah jong at the beginning and maybe detective lee at the end they are almost literally jenny's guardian angel so there's no really in in that triangle, so yeah, so yeah, maybe it is a triangle, but it's not a a, a love triangle in the sexual sense. Is a is a more uh, something more uh, immaculate, something something more abstract, something more conceptual, like a a protector, a, a triangle of protections between three. You, you can call it brotherly love, you can call it uh, her two guardian angels, or whatever you want to call it. But I think that's that's what I think the intentions of the filmmakers of the filmmaker was at this. I don't think. Even though there's a lot of sexuality that comes uh, that comes out of it, because you know the actors are human and they have enough chemistry to to marry that interpretation, I think sort of what what the what the story intends in that is is more more platonic and more on the ideal or conceptual level. Yeah, I like I totally buy the idea that Detective Lee develops this fraternal relationship with this guy who he comes to admire like that that's every beat of the story is he's finding out ah jong ah jong is an honorable guy and is closer to him than maybe his police colleagues yeah uh, and another uh, we kind of we kind of move we kind of mentioned the influences but uh you mentioned a couple of times the the way that detective lee says sees the ah jong as a honorable a gangster and that's that's that i think that kind of points out to another influence that shonu might have and that is japanese yakuza films because uh, correct yes. me if i'm wrong but isn't that isn't that a very common motif in it's a, it's very common in a lot of fukasaku film but even pre fukasaku uh fukasaku films that the honorable gangster is a very was a very prominent character in yakuza film either honorable gangster among our honorable gangster or an honorable gangster the last honorable gangster among uh, a changing landscape where gangs gangsterism or the yakuza business is no longer honorable yeah ah jong and his handler uh oh talk at points and they're like um they're effectively saying we're relics of the past because we still believe in honor and when you hear dialogue like that it immediately puts you in mind of um uh Ken Takakura films, like his films, are very popular across Asia. Uh, can can you uh, when when uh, what decade are we talking about here? We're talking sixties, uh, seventies. Okay, yeah, that that jives. Yeah, and um, like 
that's a, a familiar um, plot that the honourable gangster has to come to the defence of um, like a civilian, and he has to take out the bad gangsters who have no honour. They, the director, just makes sure. Uh, by so many times, there's no mistake about Ayong Ayong's honor. Honor is just like drives it, like just emphasizes it over and over and over. There's a little he stops to save a little girl. That that is just <laughs> as far on the on the puppy eyes, uh, puppy eyes shot that you can get. It's like literally you can't go any more honorable than that. Yeah, the main um, bad guy is blasting away with like a submachine gun. At, <laughs> yeah, Ayong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he like waits till she's okay and we see her hand moving and then he finally leaves. Like it's just, there's no mistake and he just makes sure to like emphasize that. Yeah, and the, and the heroes are wearing white and the villains are wearing black at the very end. It's Yes, and you know, that they destroy the church completely without caring about, you know, what happens and where's the... Uh, there and there's what finally the Virgin Mary is that is that a, I don't remember if it's a Virgin Mary or a statue of Jesus that I think it is yeah it's the Virgin Mary yeah he just makes sure to like show that in slow motion uh, when it happens yeah a monk gets shot as well <laughs> it's like no mercy yeah exactly yeah so he like he definitely like does that even more so than what Japanese films did at the time. Like this mm. was, this honorable gangster was a popular thing in Japanese in the 50s and the 60s. And then Fukasaku came along. He wasn't alone, mm. of course, but Fukasaku came along and he he showed another side and sort of then gangster films in Japan kind of continued in that tradition uh, for a while. But John Woo just decided to adopt the former tradition and, and quite like just bringing it back to contrasting with Ringo Lam. Ringo Lam takes the other approach gangsters in Ringo Lam at least in uh, in like for example School on Fire they're not honorable at all they're all scumbags yeah they have no problem shooting civilians yeah yeah so that, that's that's an that's a uh, that's a I think I think I'm glad you brought him up because I think that's a very th- those two filmmakers are very I think they're both very talented John Woo you know for one reason or another made a greater name for himself. Actually, Ringo Lam went to Hollywood too. He made a couple of films in Hollywood, right? With uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme yeah, and yeah. Um, ah, the basketball player who went to North Korea, Dennis yeah, Rodman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so I, I guess they're, they're, they're very similar filmmakers, the two, and I think they're great. Um, their careers follow very similar paths, but they, they are also have some really key differences that I think bring out each other's qualities, uh, emphasize each other's qualities. Yeah, yeah, they both worked in comedies before making the leap to gangster films, and the the gangster films helped revolutionize Hong Kong cinema in in a, a similar fashion to Jackie Chan. They just took it in a different direction, and they both transitioned to America, where the careers didn't quite take off. In terms of box office, I think John Woo did okay. I mean, I think I think maybe in terms of quality, I don't think his American films matched his Hong Kong films. Mm. Um, but, but in terms of box office, I mean, he's, he did okay. Face Off was a very popular film. Mission Impossible has did very well, I think. Um, Mission, which yeah, one did, yeah. which one did he do? Did he do the first or the second? Or did he do both? Second one. Yeah. Wait, did Brian De Palma do the first one? I don't remember. Sorry. I'm like, I don't know much about it. I've seen them all, but I don't know much about them. <laughs> do you forget the details? Yeah. It's, it's, if, yeah, it's kind of like, it's the same with me. If I haven't seen a movie in a long time, then it's kind of like, if it's not memorable, then I'll forget it. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I think I remember the films, and I think he did Broken Arrow, Face Off, both of those. I think um, at least With Face John Off. Travolta, is, is, yeah. yeah, it's it, Face Off is a classic. It might not be. I mean, it it's not the best action film ever made, but who doesn't remember Face Off? I think it's the best of his Hollywood movies, definitely. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, and I think one uh, one thing that maybe sadly does not show in his in his Hollywood career, and it's, I think one trait that Ringo Lambs perhaps lacks is his eye for shot composition. Hmm. Uh, just the shot composition, especially in The Killer, I think The Killer might be his best example of that. I think it's it's so great. I I kind of I just kind of when I was watching this movie, I just paused in some some scenes just to admire how he he put together the shots. I think he's is great at that. Like there's a this was more of an accident, but there is a there is a shot uh somewhere in the middle or or on the second half of the film where Chao Yun Fat sits by a window and smokes a cigarette and a plane passes by. Mm. And it's just that's just incredible. Of course that was probably an accident because you know that it wasn't CGI, a real plane was passing by uh as he was doing that and he was able to catch that. But I just that just looks phenomenal in my opinion. I like I like the fact that John Woo took us to different parts of Hong Kong. So um, I think it's got like, yeah. the new territories. So it's like more rural parts. And some of the shots of the Hong Kong skyline are just fantastic. Especially when like uh, Ah Jong is trying to escape Jenny's apartment with the two cops tailing him and you just see these towering skyscrapers. It's like a, a new view of Hong Kong that you don't necessarily see in Ringo Lam's movies which are down on the ground in the dirt. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think um the budget was probably a little higher on this one. This was 89, so by the time um uh John Woo was maybe more of a household name and he could command larger budgets and maybe more creative freedom, a better creative team perhaps. I'm not I'm not sure, I'm just speculating. Yeah. Um was was there a problem like a better tomorrow one was a hit? A better tomorrow too. Was there not a problem with that going over budget and uh, being too long? I think so, and I think I think John Woo was not happy with that. I remember reading that he was not satisfied, and I think that's why he didn't do the third one. So he hard yeah. directed the third one. Yeah, there's like a split in their friendship at that point. Did they split? Because they, I think they have a few movies after that together still. Ah, uh, well, don't quote me on it, but I don't think their collaboration was as tight because there was like a fractious relationship at the production studio. And Seahawk um, tried to take over editing on um, a Better Tomorrow Two. I, that that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think a Better Tomorrow Two was the kind of film where uh, the the film made made so much money that they told him you have to make a second one and probably he just agreed to do it for the money instead of you know really feeling it that he had to do it possibly there's an interview on youtube with sweetheart where he goes into the detail of the studio film workshop and some of the problems it seems like uh like the uh, people at the head of it were arguing with each other and they were like desperate to keep making hits and um yeah it's worth uh checking out yeah but uh but i think even even so i think a better tomorrow too made uh was successful at the box office and and the killer certainly was it was slow to catch on in hong kong are you talking about the killer or the a better tomorrow the killer because of yeah, yeah that's true the uh ah because of ah, that's uh, crackdown in China, Tiananmen Square, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was also very critically su- uh, 
commercially, uh, I mean, critically successful. It won a bunch mm-hmm. of awards. It was sort of it was sort of a, a head at the or it was heavily featured in the in the years in the 1989 uh, Hong Kong Film Awards. Uh, it won Best Director for John Woo and Best Editing, uh, and it was nominated for Best Film, uh, Best Supporting Actor, Best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. Um, it did not win those. Actually, who won those? Let me look it up really quick. I think um, Chow Yun-Fat won Best Actor, but for the film All About Along. All About Along, which I have not seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, neither have I. Uh, Jackie Chan was nominated that year. Um, yeah, I, he, yeah, John Woo directed, uh, I mean, won Best Director, and I, Johnny Toe was nominated. Oh, All About Along was a Johnny Toe film. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I know the director. I've seen many of his films, but I've not seen, I've not seen this. So I can't see information about who won, what won best film. That's weird. Let's see, uh, best film went to Beyond the Sunset. Okay, I don't recognize it. Eight Tales of Gold. I know that story. That's a uh, that's a Mabel Chung story. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned her in the in the podcast before. All about a long sounds like maybe it's a film that we should check out. Mm. Uh, Johnny Toe. I mean, I, 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 that's a director I respect, but, but uh, who knows? Maybe I'll check it out this week if I have the time. Um, yeah, it's it's a drama, so it. Di- I, I don't think it made its way to the West, which is uh, a, a sort of thing that happens with a lot of Chow Yun Fat's movies. Like he can do, com- he's popular in Hong Kong for comedies and dramas, but we don't see many of them in the West. Yeah, a lot of his comedies and you know other other comics like uh, Stephen Chow, which is another one I like. A lot of his earlier films are are hilarious, are very good, but they just don't make it in the West. And I think I think a lot of films from this time don't like. There's a lot of quality content from this time that never made in the West, except for you know Asian or Hong Kong film connoisseurs. It's just only the top of the top of the top really mm. have like received attention, like you know 80s and 90s Hong Kong cinema. Mm. It was, I think, after that that maybe became a little bit more common to export films to the West, and maybe that's not unique to the Hong Kong. That's maybe other Asian territories as well. Yeah, it's like um, genre cinema. It's easier to sell. So, especially Absolutely. if you've got something like um, The Killer, you could like the way John Woo films it. It's really easy for audiences around the world to understand, and the themes are broad enough that it can appeal to anyone. So that's and. A no-brainer in terms of what do you export? Yeah, I, I'm reading just skimming the the thing here. It looks like it it was well received in the West. Uh, I'm I'm, mm. I, I'm not seeing any any box office number if it received any any theatrical release or it was just all home media. But based on the legacy and how many Western filmmakers this film has influenced, I think it's safe to say that it was you know well received in the right circles. We already mentioned Quentin Tarantino uh, as a big uh, having having been influenced a lot by. John Woo, I would say Luc Besson. His early films are very much uh, influenced by John Woo, like Leon the Professional and yeah. La Femme Nikita. Yeah. Um, uh, the Matrix takes a lot from John Woo. Well, according to the Bay Logan um, commentary uh, video on YouTube, that one of the stuntmen in uh, The Killer, uh, you see him die twice in the film, he actually went on to work... Uh, with Yung Wu Ping on The Matrix. That's right. I've, I, I'd heard that. And Yung Yung Ping, uh, what's his name again? I, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, Yung Wu Ping. Yung Wu Ping. He, he's, he worked, what, I think he worked in some well-known Hong Kong films, right? 
Yeah, Iron Monkey is probably like his most famous, okay. but he also worked with Jackie Chan on um, Snake and Eagle okay. Shadow. I think, yeah, yeah. I, they, I was, I had heard of that. Thanks for bringing it up. And you have here Black Lagoon as well as a, as a film that was influenced. Yeah, so um, Black Lagoon. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a character who is essentially um, Mark from A Better Tomorrow. He wears the duster. He's got the scarf. He's got the, I think he's got like two Berettas and um, he's got the sunglasses and he's chewing on a matchstick. And that's like the biggest reference <laughs> to a, a John Woo movie uh i've seen okay and then i i think in terms of anime uh there's probably a lot more that have been influenced by john woo even even though he might not be able to name them all because his action and maybe his just particular flavor of melodrama i think fits the anime sensibility very much yeah also like um the doves as well the doves that fly like that's something that's Used yeah. in a lot of films. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I haven't watched Shaun of the Dead in a long time, but there's probably references. Uh, not Shaun of the Dead. Um, Hot Fuzz. There's probably references. Yeah, uh, that I'm, I can't think of any of the top of my head, but I'd be surprised if there wasn't something there. Yeah, like real direct references. Uh, okay, so uh, before we go to our closing opinions, is there uh, anything else that you would like to um, to talk about regarding this film? I just think like John Woo's um, framing and his camera movement and the choreography he's got on the screen is just fantastic. It's like especially with the um, church fight at the end where the camera is circling the heroes and uh, they look so stylish and they're reloading their weapons and then you see the uh, gangsters move into position and the gunfight starts and everybody starts rolling around. It's like really exciting. It looks like a dance. Yeah, like the the amount like even though it's like these shots are quick and it's easy to forget that so much preparation must have gone into this so much thought it doesn't look fabricated it still looks genuine Mm. uh although and i think that's enhanced by the style so if you've you've already accepted that this is not a, a a representation of reality it's it's a it's a stylized representation of it and you kind of and i think he keeps it consistency and i think the the consistency of style that he keeps throughout the film makes it makes it so that you can easily buy the film that it doesn't look fabricated it looks like it looks real within the reality that he presents in the film absolutely and the actors all play their roles perfectly so you you're never drawn out of it i i would agree with that it's it's a really intoxicating film Okay, so uh, we usually end the episodes by giving them, you know, where uh, I, I guess we haven't asked this uh, specifically, but, and I think the answer would, to this would be yes, but do you think this is a good uh, gateway film for someone to be introduced to either Asian fil- cinema in general or, or Hong Kong cinema in particular? And what star rating would you give it? I would give, I, I would say yes, it's a perfect film because it's like, um, it has all the themes of heroic bloodshed uh and it's like out of all of the directors that worked in that genre uh, jean Wu has the most style and his style um left the mark on modern cinema and uh the story is so easy to get into that you can put it on for anybody they could enjoy it they can understand it and uh i would say this is definitely top free jean Wu. um 
I would give it like four and a half, maybe five. Uh, in terms of like uh, top three, uh, Better Tomorrow, Hard Boiled, and this. Um, and I, I like them all equally, but for different reasons. Okay, uh, that's great. Um, I would say I would say I would agree with you on the on the accessibility. This film is very accessible. There's really not any cultural references that you have to get, as opposed to uh, a filmmaker that I keep comparing to, like Ringo Lam. I would definitely want people to familiarize themselves with Ringo Lam. Uh, Ringo Lam. I'm sorry if I'm imp- if I'm mispronouncing that, but uh, but I, I think it's not someone that you can introduce someone to Hong Kong cinema with, whereas. Uh, John Woo and especially the killer it's it's so easy to get into whoever you are wherever you live so so yes on that if it's a star rating I'd say it's a four I think mm. um I don't know I don't know why I can't I can't go quite as high as a five maybe because I'm just the kind of person that is appreciates minimalism a lot more so maybe that just prevents me from giving it that that extra star okay. uh, uh, but it's it's very good. As of top three, I'm gonna refrain from being that because I haven't seen all of him. All of, I've seen all of his films, but I haven't seen them recently. So I'm I don't want to give something that um, that ends up not being correct or that I'm not remembering it right. Okay. All right. So that was it for this episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. Uh, hope you all stay safe and uh, see you in a couple of weeks.